Welcome back to another episode of Slay House Presents. I'm your host, Trevor. Today, I am joined by Alexis Dubon, who is a work of fiction. Any resemblance to actual persons, living or dead, is purely coincidental. She is the author of It's Going to Be Fine, coming from Off Limits Press in 2025, as well as co-editor of No Trouble at All from Cursed Morsels Press in 2023. You can also find her in publications from Cemetery Gates Media, The Wicked Library, and Southwest Review, or on Twitter at at Dubonic Plague. Welcome, Alexis. Hello! I'm so glad to have you on. I'm so glad to be on. I was, uh, when I met you at StokerCon, I like instantly fell in love with you. And now here we are getting to talk about love. It's so fun. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I, I feel like StokerCon is just the giving tree of events because I meet so many incredible people that enrich my life so deeply. And so I'm I'm so glad that I had the opportunity to meet you and of Me course too. Shotzi too. That was a real highlight of the con. Of course Shotzi too. <laughs> For those who do not know, Shotzi is Alexis's dog. Yes, she is my dog. She is the love of my life. She is essential to my existence. <laughs> and she is actually um the catalyst for this um podcast episode this conversation that we're about to have i want to hear all about it so um i we, we i brought you on specifically for a valentine's day special where we are going to talk about love uh, but this is kind of spawned by a twitter thread that you had posted a little while back um, some thoughts about how media kind of treats uh, love and and how our expectations for love develop. But I do want to hear about this origin story with Shotzi, because I think this ties into some of your philosophy. Yes, it definitely does. Um, okay. So first of all, let me just say, I have no credentials. I <laughs> am not an expert in love and I am not an expert in psychology and I am not an expert in like uh, sociology or anything like that. I have a bachelor's in political science, which I did not use at all because I <laughs> waited tables for my whole life where political science had very little to do with my profession. What I can say is I have had a long and interesting um, dating and love life. I am divorced, very happily divorced, and um, living with my dog Shotzi, who is my world. And it's a long and unpleasant story, but she every three months has to go to um a hospital in Virginia to get a checkup on her um like like an ultrasound to check up on her mm. insides and so while she was there cuz it takes a couple hours I drop her off and then I pick her up later while she was there I was doing a lot of thinking and 
Um, I don't always just like puke out my I th thoughts and ideas into my Twitter feed, but I just decided that this <laughs> uh kind of belong there because it's like a thing that it's a thing that's a part of everybody's life and everybody can relate to in one way or another and yeah. it's just like um like a fact of existing in our society so um if you don't know the thread that we're talking about um i can read it to you yeah, please do, because I, I think this sets up the whole background of what I want to discuss with you and, and how this kind of reflects in your art as well. It's long, so just a heads up. All right, here we go. Good morning, everyone. I have a rant. It's a thread. It's kind of long. It's about love, appreciating non-traditional sources of love, and the destructive power of devoting your life to the endeavor of finding your one and only. One of the many ways our culture has failed us is by instilling the propagandized notion that life is not whole without a romantic partner. So we are conditioned to spend our lives in pursuit of this at the cost of so much. Self-discovery often often repressed in the endeavor to better appeal to a prospective mate, appreciation for the fulfilling relationships we already do have because they're not the one, a fixation on an unproven but promised future that exists beyond our control, um, and so many other things too. The constant and unrelenting pressure to obtain this platonic ideal of the only true thing that can make you whole and bring meaning to your life is obviously rooted in propaganda meant to perpetuate traditionally heteronormative systems of oppression in its many expressions. And it demands so much. Arguing that our inability to find this is a reflection of ourselves and therefore our own failure. It creates an environment of manufactured misery, leaving holes in people's lives that they frantically and compulsively try to fill with unexamined consumerism, hoping this, in some way, may manifest a version of themselves that presents in such a way as to draw in their impossible romantic partner that we are taught we simply cannot live a full life without. This often leads to poor self-destructive choices. People accept romantic partners that they know on some level are not the answer to that haunting hole in their lives, hoping that they could change them in some way to make them into the person that they deserve. This never works. And I'm going to repeat that. This never works. <laughs> <laughs> um, people enter into relationships that they are conditioned to see as aspirational whether the solidification of such a union improves or damages their actual well-being in the long term. There are so many places where real love exists that are overlooked and taken for granted because we're hunting for something we are so deeply conditioned to believe is the only true answer. It is so deeply ingrained in us that we don't even see it. It's become something that simply just is. And it's accepted as unquestionable or even automatic truth. 
Happiness is so much easier achieved when we take stock of the many already existing loves we do have. The ones we brush aside in our exhausting hunt for the one thing we are so certain will be the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. That one person who will give us meaning and purpose and offer a shared perfect world that only exists in the realm of your shared love. This is not a guarantee. And it is often a fruitless venture that leads to more harm than good, injuring our sense of self rather than enriching it. I guess all this to say, uh, to reevaluate the love that already exists in your life, that you may already have the person or people you are so well matched with, who bring you joy and accept and appreciate you as you are who treasure your company and who you feel mutual admiration towards, who allow you to grow and share in your wins and comforts you in darker times. These are all the things we expect from a romantic partner, though they already exist in other relationships. We are often disillusioned when our partner is incapable of providing such comfort. However, we are conditioned not to value met needs from others in equal measure. This can be true of friends, family, pets, coworkers, etc., and does not need to be limited to any single person. No one person can be all of these things, but that doesn't mean the aspects of them that you were sold as coming from a single source who you are likely to devote the rest of your life to, in many cases dropping the previously mentioned along the way, aren't equally if more valid. Don't undercut the importance of friendship, of pet love, of unfaltering and established trust and acceptance that already exists in favor of some unproven and often disproven fantasy that's been drilled into all of us. Appreciate the love that already exists in your life and let those people know how much they matter to you. It's important and it makes a difference. And that's the end of my Twitter rant. <laughs> I I feel like there's so much I want to unpack out of this, but also so much I I don't even know if I have anything to contribute because it it is kind of this complex philosophy that I find so much value in. So before opening up the door to a whole bunch of discussion, let me just say, Alexis. I love you and value you for all of the many things and thoughts that you bring into my life to think about what power in what friendship you've shown to me and what power through the art you share in the world. I can't think of things that are more enriching to my life than this. Um, so I'm, I'm just excessively grateful for you for sharing what you share and also for being here on this show to talk with me. It means a lot to me. Thank you. It's very sweet. And I, I feel the same about you too. I mean, okay. So we're both early risers. So I remember <laughs> our first morning at StokerCon, like it was like six o'clock in the morning and you were in the <laughs> lobby and I was taking Shotzi downstairs for her, for her first walk. And we kept looking at each other 
And there was like, you know, it was a hotel and it was full of like other people too. So we're like, is this a Stoker Connor? I feel like it. And then I looked at your shirt and you were wearing the Sleigh House logo. I'm like, I know that logo. So I was like, all right. So um, then I walked up to you and I'm so glad I did because I love you too. Like <laughs> meeting you there was just like, it enriched the whole experience. I love hanging out with you and talking to you and getting to know you and just like sharing time together. Mm -hmm. And it was, you know, those things mean things. Yeah. It was, you know, like it was a very, very like fulfilling experience and a very joyful experience. And that has like, that has a lot of value. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Um, and I'm so glad that you uh, approached me to say hi too, because I kept passing, but I didn't want to be weird as I am. I'm usually very weird um, as like Laurel Hightower will tell you. <laughs> Like I, I just walked up to her and was like, we're going to be friends. There, there was like really no. Well, Laurel's more recognizable because I, I try to keep my face off the internet. Uh -huh. It was funny because in retrospect, like right after I kind of uh, pieced together who you were on Twitter, I was like, oh, I've, I've had so many interactions with you mm -hmm. um, without even, you know, necessarily knowing who it was. So it, it it's just great how things just kind of fall together that way. I'm glad you were wearing that shirt because if you weren't <laughs> wearing that shirt, then neither one of us would have approached the other and then <laughs> we never would have met maybe. Yeah, probably not. Getting back to your Twitter thread, you know, and, and, and some of the philosophy that you share there about love. Um, I had a, an immediate reaction to this thread because I see so much of the truth that you speak borne out through my own life and through my own kind of uh call them turbulent romances i don't necessarily know that the romance themselves were turbulent but how i perceived the importance of them well we're taught to read the turbulence of romantic relationships mm. in a certain way like we're taught to see i think turbulence is a perfect word like we're taught to see that as like a sign of passion mm. and like a sign of like how deeply entrenched you are in each other mm -hmm. and how much meaning you have to each other to elicit such a powerful emotional response when really like maybe it's just turbulence like maybe maybe <laughs> there's like a disconnect or some sort of like you know you're not having your needs met you're feeling frustrated you're not feeling heard you're not feeling seen but mm. we are like like so often is the case with red flags we are conditioned to overlook them or like we prefer not to acknowledge them and because we have a greater goal that we're working towards 
and yeah. that it'll all be worth it in the end. Like, mm -hmm. love doesn't need to be a struggle. Like, love doesn't need to hurt. Yeah, I think it's wrapped up in this idea that we're sold that uh, love or, or romance is just kind of an effortless thing. And it it doesn't take into account the many you know, diff the many ways that I think our lives are more multidimensional than just that. And, and ourselves are more multidimensional than, than just that. Um, you know, you kind of hit upon this idea of when, when loving someone else, it's, it's like, are you actually in love with the person that they are, the, the kind of three-dimensional individual with a rich and complex interior life? Or are we only in love with the idea, you know, the, the kind of idealized version that we project of them. Yeah. Um, and, and how often are we excusing who they are in, in order to kind of affirm who we want them to be, you know, and, and then vice versa, you know, how much um, are we, you know, kind of missing their own aspiration for who they are trying to grow into um, in, in order to kind of, I don't know, like trap them, <laughs> you know, keep them in a space that maybe 100%. is not the, the person that they're growing into or the dimension that they're growing through. I agree a hundred percent. And I have felt that in my own life and I've seen it in my friends' lives and it, like, it breaks my heart when you see it happening. Um, and you really like you, you really, you just can't say anything. You you just can't. Mm. They're gonna have to see it for themselves. It's good if you say something. The only relationship that will be affected is you and your friend. And like you know, I learned that the hard way. But I think that romantic relationships are the only relationships with an end goal baked in. Mm -hmm. So like they're the only relationships we form with a purpose in mind. And because of that, there's this huge interplay between how we present ourselves, like we cherry pick the aspects of ourselves that we want to project, that we want to project mm. and to be seen instead of like being vulnerable and authentic. But mm. then on the other end, like we have this image of what we're looking for. And so that shapes how we perceive our partners. Like there's also some cherry picking there. Like mm. you ignore certain things or you excuse them mm. or you, you know, you like build a narrative around them. Um, like you allow things to happen that normally you never would mm -hmm. but it's because you have you're interacting with like a manufactured reality instead of the mm. reality that is you're living in the you're interacting with the reality you want to be true instead of with the reality as it stands and for me, I think in many ways, um, romantic relationships 
are very much like um, parasocial relationships in that way. The way we kind of like see celebrities and are like, oh, you know, if only Kristen Stewart met me, we'd be <laughs> the best friends. Like, you know, <laughs> like we build like, I nobody knows, you don't know these people. Right. They live full, <laughs> complete lives that are like, they exist 24 hours a day in those lives that are theirs. Yeah. And what we see of them is all that we know. So like, we can, we can like construct a narrative of like who they are based on like interview clips or whatever, or like things that we see. Mm -hmm. But like, that is our that is our narrative building that is like us mm -hmm. creating a story and making a fictionalized character and projecting it onto someone real well and in your fiction too you incorporate this idea of like you know the narrative building not just of other people but sometimes the narrative building that we construct for ourselves you know the the way that we tell stories of who we must be and and therefore we also tell ourselves stories of who we must have in our lives or you know what we must be pursuing in order to fulfill um the the parts of us that we feel are are lacking or are um incomplete you know you talk about this idea of the need for fulfillment through a romantic relationship but but what even is the fulfillment there that we're talking about you know what is the fulfillment that we actually need versus the fulfillment that we narrativize for ourselves as needing do we actually need fulfillment in these angles at all i mean how much of what we try to construct for ourselves is just a mask or the, the way that maybe we feel about ourselves or the way that, that we're taught to feel about ourselves. Because like you mentioned, there's this manufactured misery um, that we, we must feel in order for our consumerist society to continue marching forward. Yeah. It's something that we're promised. It's something that we're told mm. is a reality of life that soulmates exist and true love exists and that all of that is centered in one person who belongs to you who you belong to mm. and if you're unable to like capture that then the problem is with you mm. like you are doing something wrong. Like, why Why haven't you found this other person? Or like, why have you found this other person, but they're not interested in you? Mm. Like, there are so many things that we're just like, from birth, conditioned to accept as reality and truth and just like that's just the way it is. And, you know, there's no alternative. And without mm. it, you will 
not be whole and you will not be happy and mm. you will not know fulfillment. And so all the things that we ignore or choose not to value because we're like horses with blinders on mm. like we're only looking straight at this one thing and we're like cannot see all of mm. this like all of this like really meaningful things that really sustain us mm. support us love us accept us who see us for who we are like those are those are the relationships that you enter into because you're not entering into them trying to attain a certain goal mm -hmm. you don't have the pressure to perform mm -hmm. and you could just you know just be who you are and go forward and you make some like really deep connections that way mm -hmm. which for some reason we are told don't count as much as mm -hmm. the relationships we make that are often founded on like effort into mm. the persona we port portray mm. there's an idea embedded in what you said that i find to be kind of at the heart of a lot of the toxicity of i think romantic relationships and it is this idea of the transaction right the idea of um, and I don't just mean that in like the business sense that because we talk about trans transactional networking or, or, or transactional um, relationships in, you know, like uh, publishing or, or, or podcasting or, you know, this kind of networking where it's like, I'm only going to connect to this person for what they can do for me. But I think that exists in romantic relationships too. You know, absolutely. There are times when I think people go out to, to find someone else, you know, as a, not necessarily because they're interested in that other person or like, you know, really building a, a strong relationship, but because there's an expect, expectation that you need the, the relationship in order to feel some kind of fulfillment or some kind of um, way about yourself, you know, yeah. And, and, and there's so much toxic toxicity there. I, I come into this conversation as a guy who has been taught his entire life what romantic relationship is supposed to look like. And specifically what, as a man, your relationship should look like with other women. And in that sense, it's like, men are never really taught how to build intimate friendships outside of sexual intimacy. Yeah. And they're only ever taught that women are there for that kind of sexual intimacy. And it, it may not be an explicit, um, you know, conversation or, or instruction that way. It is the, the, this kind of shape of masculinity and how we think of masculinity yeah and i think a lot of this stems from the fact 
that these concepts are rooted so deep in history mm -hmm. from the inception of religions mm -hmm. that dictate what what a marital partnership should look like and then that has become so ingrained culturally that like in all of its in all of the ways those concepts are expressed <laughs> um um <laughs> uh, sorry we switched we switched boxes in the zoom and it was very confusing because I, I was looking away and then I looked back and then we were in different places so that's why we're giggling I think what happened was you raised your hand on zoom <laughs> and for whatever reason zoom was like oh you raised your hand and so it I don't know what happened it put me in the driver's <laughs> seat I gesture too much I have to. I have to figure something out about. I want that. you to. I want you to gesture. It's totally fine. I'm gonna keep this in the episode because I think it's really funny. But uh, <laughs> no, I. I. You know, I kind of hear what what you're saying. I feel like you're right. We're given only these certain pictures of relationships, and even in the moments when I think literature or art is trying to transgress against um, some of these expectations, they still reinforce these ideas of like what a relationship is and, and what both partners are expected to perform in a relationship. I'm going to reach back into my world lit brain for a second. Mm -hmm. There's a, a, a very famous Greek play called Lysistrata, and it is... Um, ostensibly kind of a, a commentary on the politics of Greece at the time. Um, it, it takes place during a, a war. I can't remember which war it was, so forgive me if I'm, I sound really stupid, but um, it takes place during a war, and, the, and the, the basic breakdown of the story is that um, the women of this Greek society are very tired of constantly seeing their men go to war. And so they decide that they are going to withhold sex from them and push them to resolve their differences because if they want to come back to their women, um, they're, they're going to have to stop going off to war. And so they form this protest and they kind of seize their power. And, at the end of the play, basically the men are just like a slobbering messes. They can't deal with the fact that they're horny all the time. And so they kind of come back if they settle their differences so that they can hook up with their women again. And I think at the time it was definitely intended to be a criticism of political leadership in, in Greece. The fact that women did not, were not represented, you know, in, in, um, uh, uh, governance, you know, that sort of thing. But at the same time, it reduces a woman's agency, right? Reduces a woman's role strictly to this sexual angle. And, and, and it defines her power. Exactly. In, in only one kind of dimension. And so uh, it's like, even in the moments when I think artists of the past, right, have tried to come in and criticize some of the way that our society has been structured. It seems like these 
structures of relationships between men and women never really change. I mean, that text is thousands of years old, and yet it it seems like we're still trying to deal with this fact that there's such a limited concept of what the relationship between a man and a woman can be to begin with. Well, I think that there's an incentive to maintaining certain structures is that in something that is so heavily controlled, it is easy to claim power and prescribe moral judgments Mm. and in some cases like legal and judicial like Mm. punishments um and just keep people in check and keep people um boxed in to something that can be clearly defined and if something can be clearly defined, it's easier to control mm. and it's easier to keep in check. Mm-hmm. And so then like, you know, it is the word of God that one man should be married to one woman. And, mm-hmm. you know, and like really like in the the in the reality of it like what function does monogamy serve like yeah i'm not saying like none of like none of what i'm saying is that there isn't value in romantic mm-hmm. relationships sure. sure there's value in romantic relationships and sure there's um you know um people get something out of them but like it's a lot to put on one person and it's a lot to expect someone to find in one person Mm -hmm. and i think that these so deeply entrenched and heavily ingrained and somewhat archaic prescribed like demands of what interpersonal relationships have to look like or else I think that it's like really dangerous and it just leads, it leads to so much unhappiness and it leads to so much misery and it leads Mm. to so much, like people internalize it. It Mm -hmm. must be a reflection of themselves because obviously like, well, everyone else is, you know, happily married, you know, mm. what's wrong with me? Mm-hmm. Um, also, um, this is like, I don't know if this is like a little off topic, but just, you know, like when you're waiting tables, you're kind of invisible. People don't mm. realize that you're there and people definitely don't see you as like a human being. You're like, a, mm. well, you're like a thing that serves a function. Yeah. No, I was listening to this group of guys and they were talking about how one of them just got engaged and he was like so not enthusiastic about it and and all the guys at the table were just like, yeah, and they're like, I guess she's all right. They're like, (laughs) well, he's like, I mean, 
I like her. She's fine. But really, I think she's going to be. I think she's going to be a good mom. So I asked her to marry me because I think that if I'm going to be thinking about the mother of my children, I think that she's a good choice. Mm. And I think that that's another layer of it is that like your mm. romantic partner is in many cases, the person you're entering into building a family with. Mm -hmm. So that's like something you consider in choosing your mate. I don't know. I just think that there are like ways that are less confining that would ultimately serve us better, but it's hard to look beyond something that's so deeply established. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. In that, in that conversation you depict it it seems like again there's no real value for that the, the the rich complex interior life of you know this girl who has hopes and dreams and aspirations and fears and conflicts and you know all of the things that we come to expect of being a human being there's only an evaluation of you know her ability to to deliver children and apparently raise them. And I think how, how she exists in her capacity to serve him. Yeah, exactly. Like how obscene is that to not see the, the woman she is, the person, the, the opportunity there, I think to like build real lasting, meaningful connection with someone because you want to build that connection, you know, not because of of what she gives to you in the long term. It's like, I don't know. It's because it, of it, who she is. Yeah, exactly. Is it not just enough sometimes to say, like, I think that this person is interesting and I would like to spend more time, an infinite amount of time you know, like celebrating that alongside them. But that's um, not even something that factors into so many people's decision-making because mm -hmm. so many people are just so fixated on their own lives and their own goals and how best to achieve them. Mm. And I think a big problem with our society right now that I think is like super gross is like, People really struggle to understand that every single person on this planet is as much a human being as they are. Like yeah. everybody is equally human to everybody mm -hmm. else and everybody has a life that exists 24 hours a day, seven days a week, just right. like you like you know like yeah yeah i think that grappling with that enormity is such a hard thing to do and i you know i think too I, that's like why it's so important um i guess to build empathy to have grace i maybe that's what i come to art to do to help 
you know, exist outside of this weird solipsism where we just, the only thing we think of is, is like how we exist and anything else is just external to that. Yeah. Um, it, I mean, I, it's I, really hard for a lot of people for oh, whatever absolutely. reason. Yeah. But, but in its place, there's like this whole industry, I think that comes through and, and explicitly kind of exploits vulnerabilities of people, you know, like, like there is an, I think a need for, um, perhaps not necessarily romance. I don't think that there's always a need for that, but I think that there is a need for, for connection, right? If there yes. is a need for intimacy, there is a need yes. to step out of this eternal self and join, you know, community. And I think that there are a lot of people, especially young people. I get really freaked out for young people because I think that the world has been built specifically to manufacture that kind of misery that you're talking about, um, to manufacture a sense of never being complete in and of yourself. And you have to fulfill that completion through other things. And I think that that loneliness, I think that that a feeling of of kind of being trapped as a cog in a, a much greater machine and finding that to be so unfulfilling that alienation of the self that our society has built is being preyed upon by individuals who have a vested interest in you know kind of turning this cog because it makes them richer i look at people like andrew tate um who is monstrous but continues to prey upon young men who have been sold this idea their entire lives that they must find a, a, a woman that they don't even call a woman because that would be too immense you know it's it's too terrifying to think of another an individual another being yeah you know another because it implies autonomy exactly which implies choice that she right. could choose yeah choice authority agency you know all of these things which i think are anathema to the idea of of what masculinity means and how you're supposed to you know be a man um and so we see these messages proliferating you know again preying on this this loneliness you know preying on the fact that um it's so difficult to find and establish intimacy and the craving that maybe we have for intimacy in a world that is increasingly more public and public facing and performative. Very um, performative. Yeah. And, and so you get these, these guys who are learning all of the wrong lessons and baking that into their masculine identities and wielding that power i think in a way that is ultimately incredibly destructive yeah i i mean i completely agree and they're being taken advantage of by someone who is preying on the fact that we are we are all promised that love exists and we will find our love mm -hmm. but they keep getting rejected for whatever reason, one reason or another. And it's very appealing 
to be told that that's not your fault because mm -hmm. rejection is something that most people internalize. Yeah. But for people like Andrew Tate are saying like, no, no, that's not your fault. That's mm -hmm. these fucking bitches today. You right. know, like, yeah. And, and you got to um, go out and find a Stacy. Mm. Yeah. And, and on top of that, like not accepting the rejection. I think that's the other component that frightens me the most, you know, <laughs> The, the concept that we have a whole generation of young men right now who are being taught that women are are an enemy to be conquered um, and, and oftentimes to be conquered violently, um, which leads to, I, I mean, it leads to sexual assault. It leads to uh, devaluation of women. It, it leads to all I mean a, a proliferation of violences against women take your choice we've got thousands to choose from well it speaks to like things that we touched on earlier about like putting them back in their place that they have this this role that is theirs and they're stepping out of line mm -hmm. and it's them who is wrong in doing so yeah and as a man you you deserve a woman who knows her place mm. and appreciates that mm. and that's that's where i all this um trad wife content comes from oh my gosh which is essentially i'm it's um right wing conservative fetish porn yeah, right because <laughs> they I mean, good for these women if they're monetizing it, because like mm. I am all in favor of sex work and like that it's 100 percent what what is going on. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, there's a market for it. Yeah. Good on them for fucking capitalizing on it. <laughs> but the men who look at that and like the one of the things with the internet is that like it's hard to parse reality from mm -hmm. like a constructed narrative and yeah. like a selected and heavily edited um presentation yeah yeah so i mean there's no way that people can't be aware that that's a thing but i think that like it's like <laughs> It's like ignoring red flags. It's like, mm -hmm. you know, you could see there's a red flag. It's got fucking rhinestones all over it, sparkling <laughs> in the sunlight. And you're just like, what? No, that? No, that red flag. There's a very good reason for it. <laughs> right. All right. <laughs> well, I feel like this kind of transitions a little bit into your art. Um, and I wanted to highlight some stories from your uh, chapbook collection, 19 Little Stab Wounds, um, which is one of the meanest little chapbooks I think I've ever read, but also I absolutely love it. <laughs> it is so, Thank you. um, it's so profound. And, and, um, I, it was like story after story. I was just having to leap out of my chair and walk around because, uh, very many complex feelings about them. 
but I chose three stories that I wanted to look into because I think they encapsulate, at least for me, some of these ideas and and kind of bear them out as as art, as literature. Um, so the first story I wanted to look at is called The Woman in Green. I wanted to hear a little bit about you or from you about what this story is and, uh, you know, kind of some of your thoughts as you were writing it. This is going to be mean, but I wrote it with, that's oh, not mean. I had in mind a kind of like my younger self that in retrospect, I really feel bad for because uh, I think she messed out on so much um, because she was so hyper focused, you know, like we want to be loved. Mm -hmm. We want someone to love us. And like, you get like so hyper focused on that, that like, that's all that's like becomes the only thing that can make you happy. Mm -hmm. And because of that, like you, you devalue so many things that are like actually bring you enrichment and joy yeah. and like things that care about you. Um, but Pete, I said things that care about you because I'm including pets. Right. I didn't want to say people <laughs> I, that care about you. <laughs> I understood that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, cause let, let me just make this very clear. I think that pet love is a very unique kind mm -hmm. of love. And I think it's a very, very powerful love. And I think that the relationship we have with our pets is so unlike relationships we have with mm -hmm. anyone else for like a whole bunch of reasons. But honestly, like, I just think that um, if it, it can never be, it can never be overstated how powerful a thing pet love is. Yeah. It, uh, the way I feel about it is that their affection comes completely unadorned by any other social expectations. It is love on pure instinct and and the fact that it is not a performative love for them you know it is an instinctual kind of um gratitude i think is is what makes it so special what makes it so you know kind of like pure um it's just completely unadulterated by any anything else any other social system um yeah. it is a a connection that is just deeply ingrained almost in their whole being. Um, I have a, a fantastic relationship with my dog Calliope. I feel like a lot of that is, it's just like the moments that are shared between me and her, you know, there's like no human nastiness between us. You know, there's like nothing else getting in the way of just that, intimate connection and it, it's a form of intimacy that i think we we don't take into account enough um yeah, i agree yeah it's it's like there's nothing purer than that it's it's like so 
honest and it's honest you know, is the word yes yeah and it's like you i have known Shotzi for 12 years a little more than 12 years mm -hmm. we have never said a word like well no, I've spoken to her. I speak to her a lot. She has never said a word to me. We have never had a mm -hmm. conversation. Yeah. But we communicate and we are yeah. able to like convey our feelings and our thoughts towards each other and yeah. like have nonverbal conversations. Yes. And just we understand each other on like such like like a really like mm -hmm. deep deep level yeah and like there's a, there's this concept in philosophy um that i'm quite fond of it, it's the idea of like the the separation from um what we might call the real um the real being like the the real stuff the existence of life um the ability to feel things in its its totality, if you will. Um, and we are divorced or alienated from the real simply by existing and acquiring language. Like language acts as a barrier um, from us to be able to externalize all of the richness of experience, right? Like yeah. simply by putting it into words, we lose something. We lose our connection to the real it is translated out for us. And in that translation, we miss something. And I almost feel like the way I feel about pet love is that because it is unstructured by language, right? Um, it is so much closer to that, that idealistic real, right? It's so much closer to- I think that's brilliant. To, yeah. So, so that's kind of how I feel. It's like, you know, she- she does have language, but we don't share that language in common. And yeah. so the ex the intimacy that we experience is is just structured so much more differently. And there's a depth and a richness that then cannot be communicated. Otherwise, it simply must be felt. And I yes. feel like, you know, that that is is, <laughs> you know, the closest kind of appeal to intimacy appeal to the real that um maybe we're able to experience i love that because like there's no intermediary it's just yeah, yeah it's it, nothing but bond yeah exactly there's like there's nothing else kind of cutting through it oh um, i love that so much <laughs> well i'm glad you i'm glad i'm not just crazy <laughs> no once i had this professor in college and oh my god okay so I, I have gotten into two fights with um, teacher figures. One was in high school when my health teacher said, if a woman is getting raped, her best course of action is just to lie there and take it. What the actual and, fuck? And I like went off on her and like we were like going back and forth for like un until she kicked me out of the room and I got detention for it but um that was the one time that I had an altercation with a teacher and the second time was I was in college 
And one of the professors said, it, uh, we we're talking about consciousness. Mm-hmm. And he said that human beings are the only species that is capable of consciousness because we're the only species with language. Bullshit. <laughs> and I was like, fuck you. I'm like, what the fuck does that mean? I'm like, first of all, like in existence, everything, everything exists on a spectrum. So like, because there's not verbal language does no. not mean that there's not language. Right. And communication, like, trust me, dogs communicate. <laughs> and <laughs> they are super conscious and they are super also highly attuned mm-hmm. to the world around them, which mm-hmm. requires consciousness. Mm-hmm. They fucking dream like (laughs) you've seen your dog dream (laughs) like they talk in their sleep and they wag Mm -hmm. their tail and they twitch their little legs and it's like how do you do that if you have no consciousness it's like fuck Mm -hmm. you professor yeah so yeah we had an argument about that (laughs) that lasted a while I oh, just think that was like this one of the stupidest things I've ever heard a person say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I think um, no, I I totally agree with you about the pet love. I I so circling back um to the thread of of the woman in green. Um, sorry, I know I'm sorry. This was such a huge. No, I, I, I absolutely love it. Like I feel like this. This is what I want art to be doing, right? Like <laughs> I want it to present ideas, and I want it to spur us off into like evaluating who we are and and, and how we think about life. The woman in green is it's all of your stuff is uh in this collection is is kind of flash fiction, and it is simply a woman who is like waiting for the guy waiting for the guy to come pick her up and she imagines not necessarily even like who he is but but rather like what he represents to her and and what she might feel when he comes and so he's she's just sitting there like actively decomposing trying to reevaluate how can i restructure myself how can i remake myself to be the kind of girl that would be worthy of his attention. And And the funny thing is he would never even be there to, he would never even reappear to see. (laughs) Yeah. He never comes back. He's not, he's not interested in, in what she has to, to, to give what she has to represent. There's like this total breakdown. (laughs) Yeah. And, and, um, I think what's so powerful about this piece is like it it ties back in with like narrativizing ourselves, right? And and like the things that we the the lies we tell ourselves to try to make ourselves feel better. Um and and certainly the lies that we tell ourselves that are so self-destructive, right? If only I'm this way, then maybe I'd be worthy of his attention. When it's like there was never any att- he he never had any attention. It was never to about give. that. Yeah. 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 It's like, because he said, like, he'd call her soon. They'd go out again soon. So then she, like, fixates on that. Mm -hmm. And that becomes the thing that controls every other 
decision she makes or action she takes like revolves around like, well, what is soon? Like, mm. I can't go anywhere. What if I miss this call? Like, so her life is reduced to this possibility that doesn't even exist. Mm-hmm. And so she lo- she loses herself to that. And, you know, her friends ask if she wants to go out and she's like, no, no. And like, eventually they stop calling. Yeah. Um. So it's, it's like putting all of her eggs in in this one basket yes. you know, causes her to lose, uh, you know, <laughs> lose the eggs and the basket you know like like and the yes. other and that's the crux of this whole conversation that's the crux yeah. of like everything we're talking about mm-hmm. another story that i really connected with uh, in in terms of this conversation was oh love where is your sting and okay this is a story about a girl and her kind of vampiric maybe yeah, he's a vampire maybe lover. Kind of coded as a, a lover, um, but he comes in and and uh, tries to to suck her blood, and she wants that, and it grosses him out. <laughs> well, okay, so to anyone who lives in New York City or nearby New York City, Greenwood Cemetery is a huge and beautiful cemetery, and they do all sorts of events, and one of those events is called um, Open Doors. And you can buy a ticket on Eventbrite. I think they do it like once or twice a year where you can go into mausoleums, into all the mausoleums that are kept locked. And there are guides that um, stand by each one that you are allowed to enter. And they tell you a little bit about it. And on one of the ones that I went into... Um, there was this beautiful stained glass and part of the stained glass, it said, oh, death, where is thy sting? Mm. And I sort of repurposed that for this title because of the connection between her love of this vampire and death mm. and the sting of his love and how she's longing for it and mm. so that's my story about the title yeah i i love this story once more because i think gosh it it ties back into this this notion of of like you know the the rich interior life the person who is a person with real wants and needs and desires 24/7 you know um, and this woman clearly desires this, you know, intimacy, this intimate act with this vampire. But it's like her desire freaks him out. <laughs> and and because she doesn't yeah. act in the same kind of virginal way that you would expect a vampiric victim to act, um, he like he gets weirded out or he gets grossed out and he he leaves. It's like he, can't... he wants one thing from, from her mm-hmm. and she wants more something else yeah something entirely there's one action happening between them but it's being read in different ways by both of them Mm. and um i want to make a joke about um the barbie movie but i can't remember what he calls it 
like my low commitment, casual, long distance. <laughs> <laughs> yes, right. So, yeah, and eventually, spoiler alert, he stops coming back because he's like this, like she gets too attached and he's like, this is not an emotional thing, girl. He's like, I'm drinking your blood. I'm a vampire, <laughs> which is a metaphor for so many relationships we've all been in. But I think it's funny, Trevor, that the stories you tend to be zeroing in on, and I think the one that you mentioned that we're going to discuss next mm -hmm. is a similarly themed have a lot to do with self-deception and the fictions mm. we tell ourselves to keep us living in the world we'd like to occupy rather than, you know, pull those blinders off and like see the reality of the situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I feel like um, you're right. I, these are, are kind of the stories that I felt resonated with this conversation uh, because I, I do feel like when it comes to you know, what we're talking about with romantic love is, is so oftentimes the narratives that we try to tell ourselves, um, yeah. either because we've been taught these narratives or because, it, well, because I think we, we learn the narratives from the things that we're shown, you know, the, the things that, that I think yes. socially are communicated to us in spite of the fact that those narratives are harmful, you know, are toxic, are destructive. Yes. Like, yeah. oh my God. Okay. So can I just bring up two movies that I think are like so fucking hideous and people <laughs> think people are like, oh my God, it's so romantic. Oh, maybe, maybe not one <laughs> of them anymore, but one of them, yes. And like people like they form this idealized image of what love looks like based mm. on movies like these okay mm. so first of all um i had the name in my head mm. it just went away um it's a christmasy one it has alan rickman in it it uh oh love actually love actually <laughs> wow <laughs> if you want to talk about a compilation of truly toxic and like how not to are we, um, are we talking about the scene with the the cardboard like oh, why don't you leave your fiance for me best friend's brand new wife like oh <laughs> and what a creep with the fucking like zooming in on her like on the mm -hmm. entire uh wedding video but mm -hmm. also like there's a man who takes advantage of power dynamics and fucks his um fucks his uh secretary mm. and then he gives her like this like really great christmas present and buys mm -hmm. his wife this like half-assed thoughtless thing it's like Yes, this is how we should be model. Like this movie is <laughs> how we should be modeling our romantic relationships. Sure, yeah. Yeah. Then there's a guy, uh, Colin Firth. Like, it falls in love with a woman who doesn't speak a word of English. Right. I I thought is 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 she? No, she's not like a caretaker or something like that. She's he 
I can't I, I it's been forever since I've seen this movie but I felt like so many of the different relationships I I was like what the fuck is this That's so fucking <laughs> gross and you know what the only relation there is one relationship in that whole movie one that actually portrays real love and guess what it's um now I can't think of his name but it's the guy, the musician, and mm-hmm. his producer. So the Bill, only Bill Nye the, or whatever. Bill Nye, yeah, 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 yeah. The um the only real love portrayed in that movie is friendship. <laughs> like, <laughs> so I think that that is like an important takeaway that like not many people took away. Yeah, I think that that is like a super toxic movie. The other one is A Star is Born. See, I have not seen that movie, but I had no interest in seeing it to begin with. I I just knew it was not a movie that was going to vibe with me. I really like Lady Gaga, so. (laughs) I Um, I don't have a problem with Lady Gaga. It was just, I don't know, something about the whole narrative. I was just like, I don't I don't know that this is for me. I hate Bradley Cooper and I've always hated Bradley <laughs> Cooper. And then I saw this movie and now I'm like, oh my God, I really fucking hate Bradley Cooper. But this is a movie that was made. There's, I think there's like four versions. There's a Frederick Mar- March version. There's a mm-hmm. Judy Garland version. Mm-hmm. And there is a um, uh, Barbara Streisand version. And then there's the Lady Gaga version. And I have to tell you that I hated this movie so much that I was like, there's something wrong with me that I hate this movie so much. And it's so (laughs) beloved. And it's been redone so many times and retold so many times. Um, So I went and I watched all the versions and I'm like, no, this this story is (laughs) fucked up. This story is really bad. It's like you'd rather kill yourself then support your wife's um, burgeoning career. And by the way, killing yourself, way to steal the spotlight and make it about you. Mm. Like, mm. oh my God. I She's like, I, I there are no words for how much I hate it. Mm. But Lady Gaga does do a really good job. And the song, Always Remember Us This Way, is really good okay well and i I don't like shallow (laughs) the only person in the world oh i can't stand hearing that song i don't know what it is about that song i just every time it comes on i'm like please no let's skip (laughs) i don't know how it got so big everybody loves it so much i'm like no can we can we please play always remember us this way it's like it's obvious like how um and frozen well i mean that makes more sense. But in the movie <laughs> Frozen, everybody loves the song Let It Go, which, <laughs> yes, that makes sense that that would be the the like number one hit from that movie. Mm-hmm. But um, Love is an Open Door is so good. I love that song. Mm. And um, it it's a duet by Kristen Bell and Santino Fontana. And mm-hmm. both of them have narrated... Um, stories written by uh, carolyn kepnes no way Mm-hmm. that's incredible Kristen bell narrated sweet virginia which is a short story 
And Santino Fontana is the voice of Joe Goldberg, who is like the voice of Joe Goldberg. If I could, and this, okay, good. This, this ties into our actual conversation and the reason we're here. So um, speaking of toxic love and romantic love and like the like insane shit people do to obtain this thing that they are taught to think is their right. Um, to anybody listening, if you haven't read the You series, please listen to it on audio because Santino Fontana narrates it and brings it to life. It's like the story itself and the way Caroline Kepnes writes is so so good and like definitely like definitely relates heavily to what we've discussed in this podcast but just the way santino fontana does it oh my god <laughs> i don't okay. think i've read the you series at all well do it on audio <laughs> <laughs> i i'll have to check my library and see if i can if i can find it it's i'm sure so they have it. good it's have so it. good that's awesome well, the last piece of fiction from your collection that I wanted to, to highlight, not a, I, I, you have to know how much of a delight this is for me. <laughs> Exquisite Fictions of a Lover is, is the last one. This is about a guy who feels really controlling about his girlfriend and shoves her off a boat one, one like, no, he just drowns her in the lake or drowns her in the lake. Right. And then uh, uh, she keeps kind of coming back at various times um, as he, like, kind of rewrites uh, how she's represented to him. Um, again, a very toxic, you know, like, taking control of a narrative or, or you know, like, deceiving oneself about what the narrative actually is. And dismissing the toxicity, you know, dismissing the actual violence done upon a real person. Yeah, because he couldn't be capable of that, right? No. Right. No, of course not. I think one of the most brilliant parts of, of this story, it's it's all brilliant, but one of the, the most brilliant parts is just this opening um, paragraph where... It says that she wore a negligee and cowboy boots. It had to have rained while you were pouring yourself a whiskey. She was drenched. But by the time you got outside, the sky was clear. And then transitions to what she actually wore was that old T-shirt she kept from her high school boyfriend. Again, like this total like representation of even who she is and, and how she's dressed. You know, this total fabrication that he makes of this situation. I, I feel like that is emblematic of some of the very problems we've been talking about. You know, the inability, I think, for men to to actually account for who their partner is and, and you know, the total person that they are. Well, yes. Okay, so I'll tell you my thought process in that choice. Yes. Was... I had just watched, oh God, I didn't watch the whole thing because I was like, I'm not always good at um, keeping focused and like staying, like keeping my attention on things. I think I got distracted and like wandered off. 
but I forget what the movie is called. I think it's called like Whisper Tennessee or something or like Whisper something or maybe just Whisper, but like that's the name of the town. Mm -hmm. And in the opening scene, it's this woman walking on the highway and she's wearing like this like silk slip night dress and I think cowboy boots, which is what, mm -hmm. what gave me this image. And she gets shot mm -hmm. on the highway. And I, I was just like thinking about the sexualization of murdered women mm. and how that is so often portrayed in media. Mm. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of what took me here is that like, that's what she became to him in mm -hmm. death was yeah. like this like much sexier thing mm. than you know like an old threadbare mm. cotton t-shirt yeah yeah in in a way and i feel like it just does so much symbolic work alexis it's so brilliant because it it for me in reading it it represented like she doesn't even have the agency or authority in how he interprets her, right? Like, like he completely rewrites, you know, who she is and, and what she kind of represents to him. Um, so that even in death, right, he's still kind of rewriting what she says or what she wore or who she was. Um, because the real of her was never real to him. It, it was never the narrative that he would accept of her. And, and so you know, even when he takes her out to the lake and he's demanding to know, you know, who she spent her time with and, you know, the, the things that she says to him, he can't accept because that's not the picture he has of who she must be. Even though she's telling the truth. Exactly. Yeah. There's no accounting for who she actually is. Um, the The real human being there. It's only an accounting for the image that he projects to himself of her. And it brings us back to that Andrew Tate kind of thing that mm -hmm. women are nothing but liars. You can't believe a word they say. Yeah. You have to, you have to be in charge of interpreting what mm. they mean. Like you, you remain the boss yes. because you are dictating whatever the lies they are telling you yeah. actually mean and what that what that projects or, or what those projections reflect ultimately is like a deep vulnerability that i think in the case of men anyway they refuse to accept of themselves the idea that she must be lying to him is because for some reason he's inadequate to yes. you know like like be deserving of her and so he has to rewrite the entire narrative for himself because dealing with his own vulnerability is more difficult and not masculine enough than to just kill her and rewrite what she must mean to him oh good that's what I, that's what i wanted to 
come across. I'm glad. <laughs> <laughs> it, I'm glad. It's brilliant, Alexis. You're brilliant. <laughs> well, <laughs> thank you. I don't, I I still can't. <laughs> thank you. You are welcome, always. Well, I think that um, we. <laughs> I have so much that I want to thank you for because I. Uh, this is by far like the longest I think I've ever recorded with someone. I'm um, sorry. That it. It's not. This is not an apology thing. This is a delight thing because I value your thoughts. I value the richness of of your perception of these issues, and I especially love the way that you code and craft these things into the art that you share. I think that it is beautiful to have literature and art that reflects these ideas and provokes real conversation that hopefully opens up our eyes to the way that we interact with the world and maybe helps empower us to reflect on ourselves the things that that we hold valuable and maybe make choices that enrich ourselves and enrich our lives in a way that is helpful and not toxic yeah. you know, that's like... a giant thing to say <laughs> i'm sorry it's too big to grapple with no you've said like i mean like Honestly, I never even really think that anybody even reads anything that I write. And then everything you said is just like too shocking to even absorb. And like, I, I don't know. I don't know if I can process it. I guess that's like my own self-denial that like, <laughs> like it's not real. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I assure you, um, my belief in in this work is very real, and I think that the work that that you are doing uh, is really exciting and very real. I can't wait Thank for you. your book in 2025. I wish I could skip <laughs> forward in time so I could have it in my hands because well, um, I just can't wait to see it. Do you want me to tell you what it's about a little bit? I do. I want you to tell me and also, you know, kind of share it. Um, to those listening, because I'm sure they would also like to know what's coming ahead. So first of all, it's very different from this. This is um the reason I called it 19 Little Stab Wounds is because it's 19 stories that are all micro fiction and flash fiction. So they're yeah. they're little stab wounds. Um <laughs> um and they're just written just like stories that I wrote and obviously like long form fiction is going to have like a different, it doesn't read the same as things that are short. Mm -hmm. So I think that it, uh, my novella is a little less like lyrical mm -hmm. than this. I actually put her into retirement, but maybe now after this podcast, I'll I'll take her out of retirement one more time, <laughs> um, and put her back put her back out there in case people wanna wanna pick up a copy. So, the novella I have coming out next year, it's called "It's Going to Be Fine," 
and it is set during a zombie apocalypse, but it's not about zombies. They're like looming in the background and like they exist and we're aware of them the whole time, mm -hmm. but like they're not like major players in the um in the story. Instead, what it's about is when restaurants reopened for outdoor seating only, mm -hmm. like after people started getting vaccinated and COVID started getting like a little better mitigated for a while. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> it was so interesting hearing different kinds of customers from different walks of life describe their experiences during that time because like the way it affected me and people I know people who work in jobs like uh like restaurant jobs and just like you know like normal people like it was real there was urgency there there was a real threat there was um personal responsibility that we had to accept and we had to make, make sacrifices and mm -hmm. like the our whole world's flipped upside down but then there were I have um a lot of the customers that came to my restaurant are like super super wealthy and mm -hmm. for them the pandemic was more or less just like an inconvenience like they had to go to their um, Hamptons house and stay there and, you know, to get out of the city or they had to like go to their cabin in Aspen or whatever. And, you know, just like hearing like these very like dissonant experiences that happen simultaneously, like brought upon by a single event that affected us all mm -hmm. but so differently and the way that like extreme privilege shapes mm -hmm. people's experiences and so what the novella is about is about these two girls these two like best friends who are like basically just living in denial and like they're so used to always having things handled for them that mm. they're just certain that this is all going to be fixed. <laughs> it's all just like someone's going to fix it. Like <laughs> why do we have to have a curfew? Like this is so <laughs> annoying. So it's about them and their experience. So it's not like a zombie story where we focus on the person who's going to save the day and mm. like cure mankind. And like it alternates between points of view to like kind of like mm. um, like adjacent characters who interact with our two main girls. Um, mm. And... There's like a couple epistolary elements and there's Ooh. an article where I um, satirize somebody who writes, I think he writes, I'm pretty sure he writes op-ed for the New York Times, <laughs> but like not so discreetly. It's the first 
thing I've ever done that's been like a whole real book. So <laughs> I I hope people read it and I hope people like it. And yeah. And it's I, called It's Going to Be Fine because like, you know, <laughs> keep right. telling yourself that. <laughs> right. I uh, I can't wait to read this book. Um, the, the more you talk about it, the more I'm like, oh, sign me up. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very much ready for it. And that's coming from Off Limits Press in 2025. It is. And I um have to say that Waylon is an absolute gem of a human being <laughs> and a joy to work with. And I just like he is a, a, a total treasure. And yeah, I love him a lot. But, well, so it sounds amazing. Well, for those who would like to know more about your upcoming projects or uh, follow some of your thoughts online, where can they find you? Well, as I do not, as I do not like to um, keep my image very public <laughs> on the internet because um, I don't know, I don't trust it. Um, mm. I stick only to twitter which is just words <laughs> <laughs> so you can find me at dubonic plague it's a little bit of a pun because bubonic plague mm -hmm. but my last name is dubon so it's mm -hmm. d-u-b-o-n-i-c-p-l-a-g-u-e did i do it right i think That's i did right. it right yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> and that's the only social media I use. Um, so find me there. Okay. Thank you. Thank you for all of this time. And thank you. Thank for you. All of and thank you. For, yeah, and thank you for your brilliant questions and all the things you said and for your thing that you said about communication with dogs. It's just like... <laughs> My heart turns into like confetti. Oh, I um, love that word. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's been a joy. And yeah. Yeah. Thank you for having me on. Absolutely. <laughs> hey, it's Trevor from Slay House again. I wanted to come in here on the back end of this episode because there were some things that Alexis forgot to mention while we were recording and she wanted to make sure that I shared with everyone and it has to do with recommendations for viewing depictions of love. Some of the recommended viewing that she suggested was Fried Green Tomatoes, GDT's Pinocchio, I believe that's Guillermo del Toro, Thelma and Louise, Steel Magnolias, Breaking Bad, and Shawshank Redemption, all of which she says contain some very interesting depictions of love and complications that come from that. She also suggested reading books like The Stepford Wives by Ira Levin and The Echo Wife by Sarah Gailey. She says she really, really loved both of those books and thinks that they, again, tie into this conversation that we had in the way that they depict love. So I hope that that helps edify you a little bit 
helps you find something that maybe you want to watch or maybe you want to read on this Valentine's Day adventure or really just any time you feel like doing it. Thank you.